yeah, just because we tell Ken not to use it doesn't mean we're done with the conversation. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, first up the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. You know, at one point in time, garden shears were cutting edge technology. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very, very sharp observation, Matt. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. We just got the Magic Fest schedule for 2020, and I am most looking forward to Magic Fest Joey's house that was announced as part of the list. So everyone make sure to reserve that weekend, and we're all going to meet at Joey's place. Look, I live in Seattle, but that doesn't mean that the entire Magic Fest is happening in my apartment. That's not how that works, Dana. I agree to disagree, Joey. Uh, Normally, I think that agreeing to disagree is fine, but just not in this case. Anyway, I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at EDHREC.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we'd like to give all that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas? We're going to talk about threat assessment, finding out who our target should be in every game. Yeah, well, maybe not every game, but at least using some type of different hypothetical scenarios to try and get us into the mindset of how to evaluate who is the most threatening player at the table before the game even begins. But before we get to our main topic, I have to ask how your guys' commander weeks have been. Have you played any fun games, any new cards? What's going on with your commander life? I just want to say everyone should hail our lord and savior, Valduk. He is on a tear. I saw you posted a picture from a game where there was a whole bunch of stuff going on in that on that playmat. There was a whole bunch of stuff going on on a very handsome EDH rec playmat, I might add. <laughs> uh, but I on turn, I think it was turn eight, I had 12 lands in play because I kept hitting on my land drops. And Sword of the Animist is pretty great. Uh, I found out that the most win-more card I've ever played in my life is Eldrazi Conscription. Because why not? <laughs> that's like the eight mana enchantment gives the enchanted creature like plus 10 and an annihilator and a bunch of other plus 10 plus 10 trample and annihilator too and the annihilator did not matter but it was (laughs) it was still super fun and i had a perforos out shared animosity somehow it took me two turns with this whole to do with valduk to finally win because there was a lot going on that game but it was a ton of fun and just everybody's there were three other players and all of them were like you know what we don't have time to just to, to dirtle around, do we? We're like, no, not not with this man on the battlefield. No. That's how Valduk do. There is no time. There can be no delaying. You've got to get something down, and you've got to get it done quick because right. that thing's blisteringly fast. I mean, I know that you talk about Valduk a lot, but, I mean, I also talk about graveyards a lot. We talk about them a lot because they're really, really good, especially when they get to have amazing moments like that. That sounds really rad. It was, it was super fun. I did play another game without Valduk, uh, I played my Moldroth at plus one plus one counters deck, and I got through, got to see a lot of cards that I haven't gotten to play yet since I made that transition to kind of a theme deck with it. Uh, Rolesque and Toothy are two real good buddies that they they just love each other a whole whole heck of a lot. Toothy, even if you only draw like three cards off of Toothy, it's still a very very powerful card. 
Yeah, can attest. Toothy has put a lot of work into my plus one counters deck. Whenever it leaves the battlefield, you draw a bunch of cards for all of the counters that you put on it. I mean, and it'll just put a bunch of counters on itself just by itself. Yeah, definitely mm -hmm. very powerful. So that sounds like you've been doing some pretty nasty stuff in Commander here recently. I've been, I've been having some good times. Very good times. Dana, how about you? Um, you know, a few weeks back, I wound up putting Mystic Forge into my artifact deck, my Vela the Nightclad deck. Um, for those who don't recall, it's a card that sees a lot of play in Vintage. At least it did until it got restricted down to one copy. It's a format artifact where you can look at the top card of your library at any time, and you may cast the top card of your library if it's an artifact card or a colorless non-land card. Um, and you can also tap it to exile the top card of your library. So I wanted to test it in that deck. It's an artifact-based deck, so I figured, you know, a lot of times I would have an artifact on top. Um, I was running Frexian Arena still in there, and I wanted to just get away from enchantments and get as many things based on artifacts as possible. So I put it in the deck, and I, I, I ran it for, I think, three weeks now. My initial assessment was it was basically a Frexian Arena. Like, usually I could get one card off it most of the time. And I felt like an artifact Frexian Arena, that's pretty solid. Arena is a card that sees a lot of play. Um, so I was pretty happy with it up until this week where I had it out. And I think two different times I chained like six or seven consecutive spells off the top with it out. It was disgusting. Yeah, that um, sounds nice. So if you're playing an artifact deck and you've, you know, I think I'm at that deck. I think I'm at 41 or 42 artifacts. I would take a look at that card. It's really, really good. And there's quite a few things in artifact-based colors that reduce the casting cost of artifacts as well. You know, little things like Joyra's Familiar or things like Semblance and Anvil or um, the Tezzeret Masters of Bridge that gives affinity for artifacts. So there's a lot of those things that are already pretty synergistic in those colors. And, man, if you hit Mystic Forge and have one of those things out, you're just playing Magic for free, which is... <laughs> <laughs> pretty great so that was that was fun for me anyway i'm not sure if anybody else enjoyed it but um yeah that card was a star i'm glad it got a slot in that deck and it's not leaving anytime soon it says a lot about a card when it has been restricted in vintage of <laughs> already. exactly exactly yeah yeah that's true too it's a pretty new card as well so it's already been restricted in vintage yeah definitely definitely a lot of fun on that one we've also gotten a recent update about a couple of brand new cards from the upcoming game night product so these are five new rares one in each color that actually I mean, I don't know, just usually when I think of a Game Night product, I'm like, oh, you know, this is sort of an entry-level product. It probably won't excite me. But when we look through some of these cards, I got to be honest, these actually look pretty cool. Are there any of these five new rares that stand out to you guys as being probably pretty impressive in Commander? I mean, I think they're all playable, which I think is in and of itself kind of shocking for, for what are basically almost like intro deck rares. Usually there's some chaff there, and I think none of these are amazing, but I also look at all of them and think, I, I know what deck wants that, and I can imagine someone running this in a 75%-ish meta. I think they're all playable. Yeah, so let's just go through a few of them real quick. So the white one, for example, is a 7-mana Cat Beast. It is a 5-5 with Vigilance called High Cliff Felidar, and it says when it enters the battlefield, for each opponent, you choose a creature with the greatest power among creatures that player controls, and then you destroy those creatures. 7 mana is a lot, but you also get rid of someone else's, everyone else's biggest thing, which is pretty darn cool. Sphinx of Enlightenment is the blue one, 6-mana Sphinx, 5-5 five five with Flying. When it enters, target opponent will draw a card, and then you'll draw 3 cards. Then you've got 
untap Calculating Lich, the black one, 6 mana 5-5 five, five with Menace. Whenever a creature attacks one of your opponents, that opponent is going to lose one life just for having been attacked, which is actually pretty neat. My favorite? Weirdly, is the red one, Fiendish Duo, 6 mana 5-5 five, five with First Strike. If a source would deal damage to an opponent, it deals double that damage to that player instead. That reads very, very nicely. And just to round them all out, we've also got Earthshaker Giant, the green one, 6 mana, 6-6 six, six with Trample. When it enters the battlefield, it does an overrun effect. All of your other creatures get plus 3, plus 3, and gain Trample until end of turn. Some of those abilities actually seem pretty cool, especially the Fiendish Duo, the red one. Yeah, yeah, I think they're all really solid, and, and especially, I liked how you mentioned Fiendish Duo, especially. The ability to double damage is really nice. It's not found in that many different creatures or enchantments or whatever, but the fact that that stacks, unlike something like Double Strike, it's one of those effects where you can't really necessarily have too many of those effects, assuming your deck cares about that kind of thing, because it's it, it combines with other effects that do the same thing, so... There's definitely decks that want that effect, perhaps even Mr. Valduke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, d doubling damage only to your opponents. You, you compare it to Dicta the Twin Gods, for example, just doubles all damage. It's nice that it hits only the opponents. It does kind of stink that it doesn't hit their creatures, but we'll take what we can get considering it's it's not blowing everything up and, and hurting yourself. But all of these, they all strike me as something that scales very well. You can tell that it was designed with multiplayer in mind. Uh, and it, it does a very, very good job at doing what these colors tend to want to do and then doing it in a multiplayer sense and so scaling very well, which is something that a few episodes ago we were kind of critical of. You know, sometimes white doesn't scale as well as other colors do. Well, this this cat beast thing here that we got, it, it scales pretty dang well. Yeah, weirdly, the blue one is actually the one that I'm the least excited about. That does not happen very often. Usually the blue card in a cycle is going to be one of the best cards in the cycle, but I find myself being the most impressed with the red and then probably the black one, but even the white one I think is actually kind of interesting, especially if you're able to do what white likes to do and flicker that bad boy. You can really keep things locked down pretty effectively. I think that these are pretty impressive given that this is a product that we would usually associate with being sort of an intro level and you usually get... A Dana, as you mentioned, some sort of chaff rare sort of feeling cards along that line. These actually seem like they could make an impact. So like you said, I think that the decks know that they want them where they want them. May not blow everything apart, but I'm still more impressed than I ever expected that I would be. And there's something uh, pretty nice to say about that. All right, let's move on now to our main topic. Like Matt said, we're going to be talking about threat evaluation, but not specifically within the context of the game while it's going on, because that can flip backwards and forwards all over the place. What we want to try and do is a quick hypothetical series of experiments before the game even begins so that you can start evaluating who is going to be the most problematic player for you and your deck just from the moment that they flip over their commander. We've put together five different hypothetical pods and we'll assume the role of one of those players and then our opponents will flip over their commanders based on just that information. We just want to see if we can determine who we would perceive to be the biggest threat to our deck before the game has started. So let's get to it. Let's do it. All right, for our first pod, our first hypothetical scenario, we're going to be playing Olero, Ageless Ascetic. This is the Esper commander. He's a six mana giant soldier, four five, but let's be real, none of those pieces of Olero really matter because he spends most of his time in the command zone. At the beginning of your upkeep, you gain two life when he's in play, 
and if he's in your command zone. So this is typically a life gain deck. When he is in play, he also has the ability whenever you gain life, you may pay one mana, and if you do, you draw a card and each opponent will lose one life. Before we get on to our opponents, seeing what is also happening in the rest of the pod, before we get to our opposition, what is our strategy? How do we win the game in an Olero deck? So I'm going to guess you're going to be using your life for a resource in some way, shape, or form, whether that's you know, having a hatred in there, knowing that you can probably just one-shot somebody with a random creature if you dump 40 life into it, or using things like Aetherflux Reservoir, or um, just using it to recklessly draw cards without any regard to what it's actually costing you, because black oftentimes does that at the cost of life. So in some way, you're going to be using your life as a resource to win the game. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you're probably going to be doing it in a way that hits everyone simultaneously if possible. Yeah, I, I think if I was playing Aloro, like you said, Dana, uh, Aetherflux Reservoir is near the top of the list. Maybe, you know, your Sanguine Blood combo, anything like that that just, when you gain life, you're going to get extra extra bonuses. Even little stuff, if you wanted to go aggressive and play like a Johnny's Pride Mate, stuff like that, where you just get bigger and it rewards you for gaining life because it's just going to happen. Uh, we talk a lot about how Eminence Abilities... Maybe we're a little too powerful, and Aloro is one of those original kind of pseudo-eminence abilities where something's going to happen whether you're, you're trying or not. Right, definitely that life gain as a resource, and we often see things like you mentioned, the Sanguine Bond combo, and then also stuff like Aetherflux Reservoir, Felidar Sovereign, which can win you the game when you have a whole bunch of life. I also might expect maybe stuff like Exsanguinate, because an Olero deck definitely wants to go long, and then they'll have a whole bunch of mana to drain a bunch of life from people with a really big Exsanguinate later on in the game. Now... That we know what our deck is up to, let's look at our opposition. In the rest of the pod, the opposing players flip over the following commanders. Marisi, Breaker of the Coil. This is the Naya Cat Warrior that just came out from Commander 2019. It says that your opponents can't cast spells during combat, and whenever a creature you control deals combat damage to a player, you'll goad each creature that player controls. So we've got a Marisi deck. Then we have Tesa Karlov also in our pod. This is the 4-mana Human Advisor 2-4. She says if a creature dying causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, that ability triggers an additional time. And she also gives creature tokens you control, Vigilance and Lifelink. So we've got Marisi, Tesa, and then our final opposition is Rafik of the Many. People probably know this one really well. He's been around for a while. This is the Bont Commander. He's a 3-3 with Exalted, so whenever he attacks alone, you'll get plus one, plus one until end of turn, and you can get double strike when a creature attacks alone as well. Those are our three commanders. Now I gotta ask, who is your target to eliminate first? Who are you most afraid of in this game when you are playing Olero and you're up against Marisi, Tesa Karlov, and Rafik of the Many? So if I'm sitting down and I'm playing Olero, like you said, Joey, you're planning on the game going long. The first person that I think I'm going to try to you know address is Rafik, because Rafik of the Many, to me, jumps out as a commander that does not give you a whole lot of time to, to play around, to dirtle and set up. Olero likes to chill and, and, and do his thing, and get some important pieces out, and then, you know, start moving forward a little bit quicker. Rafik doesn't let you do that. You know, giving creatures double strike and exalted, you know, there used to be a thing that our, our content manager at EDHREC started with, you know, he called it the Rafik problem, where Rafik decks get hated out because they're just very, very powerful. Now, Rafik and power creep in the format has kind of lessened that a little bit, but Rafik is still a very, very powerful commander that can end games pretty quickly. So... If I'm a Loro, number one target for me is keeping an eye on that uh, on that Rafik player. Number two for me probably is going to be 
Marisi. Marisi does like to make sure people are attacking, but not Marisi. So I'm going to watch out for myself and make sure that Marisi doesn't turn everybody against me. And then last, I would probably start worrying about Tesa. Tesa likes to play the long game too, which means I can count on my long game being better than the Tesa player's long game. They like to get additional value and kind of grind things out, which is the same as what we do. We have blue, which means we have probably a few more tools to help deal with that. So in order, I would say Rafik is number one, Marisi number two, Tesa, I can I can address last. Dana, what about you? I think it's going to shift depending on the point of the game, um, what the threat is. Rafik is probably the scariest thing in those first four or five or six turns of the game where you can just get one shot. But once you get to that point in the game where you have some blockers um, and are holding that source to plowshares in hand or something or, or a fog effect or whatever, you can be pretty sure you can control whether or not that's going to happen to you or not. So Rafik's one of those those commanders where you have to be really cautious early. And then at that point, I feel like I just let Rafik do whatever it wants and I hold that one man up with the swords in my hand in case it comes at me and then I'll be fine. I need to then focus my attention on Tesa Karloff because the amount of value that deck is going to generate is just insane. And, you know, Rafik, when Rafik is off the field or has been lignified or something, that deck gets pretty neutered. Obviously, Tesa being in play is pretty great, but when someone casts a Fleshbag Marauder without Tesa out, it's still a really good card. When someone, you know, gets a Death Trigger draw effect or something, that's still a Death Trigger draw without Tesa out doubling it. So it's, it's she's tough to shut down, and she can just generate value at a level that I just don't know if it's something you can compete with if it goes too long. So I think you just defend yourself against Rafik early. You kill Tesa as soon as you get a chance to, and you just ignore the Marisi player for the most part. Yeah, Dana, I think I'm on the same wavelength as you here. Rafika the Many presents an issue with our life gain deck. He is a master of commander damage. He can deal an easy 21 to us where all of our life just doesn't matter in the slightest. So he definitely strikes me as public enemy number one. So I'm on board for both of you guys there. And then I think after that, my next priority has to be Tesa Karlov. Assuming that I'm able to either get rid of or eliminate any threats from Rafik of the Many, after that, I'm worried about the other player at the table who is also able to play a control game, and that would definitely be Tesa probably we can, you know, outpace them with how much control stuff we're able to do, but it's not a complete guarantee, so that's why I would want to try and use my resources to get rid of her as soon as possible. Marisi, I don't know that we ignore necessarily, but at the same time, with this particular matchup, I don't know how much goading he's going to be able to pull off with these particular commanders, and there's not much that us as a defensive Valoro deck are going to have that can attack people anyway, so we can't ignore him necessarily, especially if he starts pulling other people's strings, but Rafik is definitely the thing that I would be most afraid of because of that commander damage, and then I would want to take a look at Tesa Karlov to make sure that I can out-control that deck that also likes to go long. Here's a twist on it, though. Now I want to ask, which of our enemies perceive us as the biggest threat? Hmm, um, probably Tesa, I'm guessing. Marisi probably feels like if, if that deck gets desperate, it can win with commander damage, even if you gain a ton of life just by goading things out of the way. And the fact that you can't cast combat tricks with Marisi in play. I think the Rafik player probably isn't terribly worried necessarily either because there are some that are just going to one-shot you as soon as they can. So I would guess Tesa, who's probably going to be trying to wear people down with, you know, a, a Grey Merchant trigger that it that she brings back into play and does again, like doing those kind of 
those kind of shenanigans to spread the damage out and hit people simultaneously, that Tesa deck might have a tough time getting enough damage to you playing a Loro, gaining a ton of life every single turn. Matt, what do you think? I think it could go any of several different ways. I think the person, with us being the predominantly blue player at the table, I think the person wants to cast the most relevant spells is the one that's going to want to get us out of the way first. So whether if that's Marisi trying to set up a pretty good board presence and is worried about board wipes, because we are the control deck, we don't really care about an established board like the Taysa Karloff player might be. So we can play a few more board wipes to keep the board clear on, you know, compared to the Taysa player or the Rafik player who is completely dependent on a board presence. Like you said, Dana, having Rafik on the battlefield is very, very important for a Rafik deck. Without it, there isn't a whole lot that Rafik decks can do because they're so centered around their commander. So I think whoever's trying to cast the most relevant spells uh, and the, the most spells per game, I think is going to want to take care of us just at first glance. Yeah, the Rafik player I was interested in. Uh, initially, I think when we, you know, made this whole hypothetical pod, I think that Rafik struck me as the person who would want to gun us down immediately. But Rafik can also do that whenever. I think Rafik is actually going to be more afraid of a commander like Tesa because Tesa has so many black sacrifice effects, like you mentioned, Dana, with uh, Merciless uh, Executioner or the Fleshbag Marauder type of things. That's really common in Tesa, and something like that can really destroy Rafik, which tends to be a little bit more on the Voltron side. So it tends to be a bit more susceptible to something like Sacrifice. Then, Matt, you mentioned those board wipes. That will really wreck a Marisi Break of the Coil deck because that is a deck that's going to have a lot of creatures in play. I think that our board wipes make us most threatening to Marisi. I could see where we get that too. And and yeah, I think Rafik might be more distracted about who's going to... They they know we're not going to have many blockers at any given point in the game. Marisi, once they set up, Tesa once they get set up, they will have blockers, so Rafik needs to get those two people out of the way because it's going to be the easiest to address us later on in the game compared to them once everybody else gets set up. Yeah, it could certainly go any way, you know, there's a lot of different ways that a commander game can play out, but looking at these, it is interesting to see that maybe the player that we're most afraid of is not necessarily the player that is most afraid of us. So let's move on now to our second pod of hypothetical commanders. In this example, we're going to be playing Azuri Renegade Leader. This is the mono-green elf tribal guy. So he's a 3-mana 2-2 elf warrior that can pay a green mana to regenerate another target elf. It also has an overrun activated ability. You can pay 2 green, 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 and elf creatures you control get plus 3, plus 3, and gain trample until end of turn. I would pause and ask, what is our strategy here, guys? But you already know what it is. This is an elf tribal deck that goes wide and then overruns all of your elves. That's how Azuri do, with the mono-green Azuri doing all of that elf ball stuff. So now, let's look at what our opponents are up to. Across the table, we have Brutaclad, Telcor Engineer, 6-mana artifact creature. It's the 4-4 in blue and red. It says creature tokens you control have haste, and at the beginning of combat on your turn, you'll create a 2-1 blue mirror artifact creature token, and then choose a token you control, and each token you control becomes a copy of the token you choose. Next to them, we've got Nikosar the Mind Razor. This is the Grixist Zombie Wizard, 5-mana 2-4, that says that everyone draws extra cards, but will ping you for damage whenever we draw cards. Finally, we have Queen Marchesa. This is the Mardu Human Assassin for 4-mana, 3-3 with Death Touch Haste. When she enters, you become the Monarch, and at the beginning of your upkeep, if an opponent is the Monarch, she'll put a 1-1 Black Assassin creature token with Death Touch and Haste onto the battlefield. We're on Azuri Elfball, we're up against Brutaclad, Telcor Engineer, Nikosar the Mind Razor, and Queen Marchesa, but who were we most afraid of right off the bat before the game has even begun? And I, I think 
in most situations, regardless of who the other commanders are, I think Nekuzar. Um, I don't think it matters that you're playing Azuri. I think you just deal with a Nekuzar player because once that that cascade starts, once you get the wheel into a wheel into a wheel, you just lose the game. And in mono green, that's really difficult to stop from happening. You're probably also not playing much graveyard recursion, so you're probably not going to get any advantage from having to wheel those cards away. There's almost no way to to make up for it. I, I think you just kill Nekizar and then pick the soft target after that. Interesting. Matt, where are you at? I'm actually on the opposite end of that. I think Queen Marchesa is our first target. Uh, playing black and white, like we said about the, the previous situation, they're going to have the most board wipes in their deck. And Azuri has you know a very, very board-dependent strategy. We need creatures on the battlefield. We need elves on the battlefield in order to be enacting our game plan. If Queen Marchesa is playing any amount of board wipes, it's going to be a little hard. I actually think after that, I think Brutoclad is the one we need to keep an eye out because Brutoclad players, they, they can build some very explosive decks and just come out of nowhere, so we can't really ignore them. But I actually think Nekusar is the last person we can take care of. They tend to play wheels, restock people's hands, so if we're the elves player and we're casting you know three elves a turn, we run, out, we run our hand out very, very quickly. If the Nekusar player plays a wheel or two, that restocks us up to keep going, and then we can let the rest of the rest of the pod take care of the Nekusar player who is trying to avoid the situation that Dan is talking about. I think Azuri players, anybody who plays like a very snowball, let's get just empty our hand out, they probably don't mind seeing a Nekusar player across the table. I mean, I don't think most Nekusar decks give you a chance to refill your hand and do anything with it. I think most Nekusar decks I've ever seen run a ton of mana rocks and their goal is to drop Nekuzar with maybe a counterspell in hand in case you try to deal with it. And if you don't, then they cast Winds of Change and then cast Tolarian Winds and then cast whatever. Like, they're just going to, like, Nekuzar's going to hit the field and they win the game. Like, it's not a situation where they're casting one wheel a turn and giving you a chance to rebuild. Nekuzar hits, and if they have enough mana, the game is just probably over then. I get what you say about Marchez's board wipes, but I think by the time Marchez is wiping the board, Nekuzar is winning the game. I, I just, I don't think the... Most of the time, Nekuzar decks will let you get to that point where you care. Like, if Nekuzar hits, it's probably just going to be over very, very quickly. And I, I agree the board wipes are annoying with, with Marchez as, as the commander, but, like, I don't think the game's going to last long enough for you to care about her board wipes if Nekuzar's left untouched. That's an interesting point there that you bring up is the play pattern there. Like, Matt, you sort of described a situation where the Nikusar is in play maybe for a couple of turns and lets us draw cards over the course of maybe, uh, you know, one or two turns. And then Dane is describing a situation where Nikusar comes down and then immediately the game will end from there. Like, the person that we're most afraid of, it might be based off of the way that we know they play their deck rather than... Sure just, you know, what the commander on its face reads as. It does depend on the different type of strategy that they're doing. A Nukasar player may feel pressured to go into the drop it and then play a bunch of spells in a row sort of uh, style of gameplay strategy because they know that if their commander sits in play for a while, everyone's going to get really mad at them because they're dueling a bunch of damage to other people. Especially that Marchesa player over there who would be annoyed that drawing extra cards for the monarchy is a little bit negated and also gets hurt even more by a by a Nikasar player. That might change their strategy or just might be something that they have to keep in mind that might alter things around. I think initially I am the most afraid of Queen Marchesa both because of her board wipes but also because of the tendency of Marchesa decks to run cards like Ghostly Prison, Sphere of Safety, and Marchesa's Decree, which make our go-wide army a lot less effective. So I do think that 
Marchesa is still the one that I'm most afraid of, but I totally see an argument for why Nikosara is something that we got to bolt down immediately or else it might do a big one-two combo punch and then just completely mess up everything at the table. And I think I, that's maybe some personal um, preferences too. I tend to want to focus on commanders that I feel like can win the game without me having a chance to see what's happening. Like I've lost Bruticlad decks before for sure, but I feel like I, I know when it's going to occur. Like, oh, that Bruticlad player has seven tokens out. Something bad could happen now. But if they don't have seven tokens out, you can be pretty sure it's not going to happen. Marchesa can absolutely control the game, and it can be a situation where, like, it's going to be tough to attack into that ghostly prison and that, you know, Koskin Falls or whatever they happen to have out. But again, you can see that coming, and you can also feel fairly certain that while that's annoying, I'm not going to die next turn or the turn after because they're just they're not going to muster that kind of offense. Whereas the Nekisar deck is one where I feel like once you get to like turn six or something, at any point in time, I could technically lose to this deck. So that's that's I think something that I personally tend to focus on eliminating is that deck where I can never feel secure or safe that I've got a turn where I'm not going to maybe lose. All right. I, I can definitely see where you're coming from there. Yeah, that does actually make a lot of sense to me. Even though I still probably am most worried about Marchesa, I do definitely see the point there. And yeah, it does come down to also just the methods that they decide to actually go for when they're playing the deck too. It comes down a lot to how the person pilots it. Now I want to ask the reverse question, who is the most afraid of us? Which of the commanders we're facing is most afraid of us as the Azuri elf ball player? I think since we are that elf ball player, we are the aggro deck, the beatdown, if you will. I think Bruticlad probably is going to be the most scared of us. Green has a lot of ways to deal with uh, with artifacts, which Bruticlad is very board dependent. Bruticlad has to set up. Bruticlad has to have a board presence in order to win. Like Dana said, Nekusar can win out of the blue. It's a, a win that you may not see coming. So oftentimes Nekusar might just play solitaire for a little bit, doesn't really care about what we're doing. Whereas I think Bruticlad kind of has to, to buy themselves time. Green ramps very well. Elves ramps very well. Is it doesn't ramp all that great. So I think they're going to struggle the most and have the slowest start out of the gate. So they're probably going to have their eye on us just as we are the deck who is going to try to be ending the game sooner than later. I'm not really sure. I've never played a Queen Marchesa deck, so I'm not really sure. I think it's going to depend on how many board wipes they're playing, if they can play Ghostly Prison type of effects and, and stave us off for, you know, two turns, all of a sudden we can't really attack profitably into them. So I think it depends, but I think regardless of how the game plays out, Bruticlad is probably the most scared of us just because of what Green naturally does very well. And we're doing things that they want to do, only probably a little bit better. That's a great point I had not even considered, is that we have plenty of artifact destruction and Bruticlad's tokens are largely going to be artifact-based, which becomes very, very threatening to Bruticlad. I hadn't even thought that that might be the person that was most afraid of us because that was another pretty aggressive deck. I thought that they might almost want to be a little bit chummy with us because they'll make a bunch of tokens that hit people and we'll make a bunch of things that hit people. I had expected more to, like, that the Nikosar player might be worried uh, about us because of our really quick aggro. But yeah, it actually makes sense to me that maybe, I mean, it could be both Nikosar and Bruticlad are both afraid of us, but I actually totally see what you mean with, you know, Green's hatred of artifacts really filtering over and almost by accident messing with Bruticlad's plan. That's a great observation. I would suggest were I playing this game, I would repeatedly make the point that unless somebody had a really obvious board state, the Nekizar player is a threat. Like, <laughs> like just full stop. Like, it, unless I've got, you know, six elves or eight elves in play and a bunch of mana, 
the Nekizar player is the one everyone should be focusing on, and I would find a way to diplomatically remind everyone of that. Unless there's an obvious board state situation suggesting that Azuri is the threat, I don't think there are many, very many times anyone should be scared of that deck as long as Nekizar is still there. All right. Dang, that's a pretty savage. A lot of hate for Nekizar over there, man. <laughs> I, I just think that's it's it's the deck, like I said, it's a deck that can just win if you're if you let the person stay in the game, they can win. So unless there's an obvious reason to shift your attention, I think that's a deck you focus on just full stop. Alrighty, let's move on now to our next pod. Our third example here, we are going to be playing Gonti, Lord of Luxury. They are a 4-mana 2-3 Aetherborn Rogue with Death Touch, and when Gonti, Lord of Luxury, enters the battlefield, you look at the top four cards of an opponent's library, exile one of them face down, and put the rest on the bottom of that library in a random order. Then for as long as that card remains exiled, you may look at it, and you may cast it, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any type to cast that card. So... Before we take a look at our opposition, what are we expecting about a Gaunti deck? How are we expecting to win the game in this Mono Black Commander? I think you're probably going to be doing big black mana things, probably as a sub-theme. Most Gaunti decks I've seen do that. Um, you're going to look to steal some value, but you're probably going to be looking to do kind of the things black decks tend to do, whether it's looping a Grey Merchant or casting a giant Torment of Hailfire or Exsanguinate or something. Um, it's just going to generate value until it gets to that point where it can do one of those big black mana things. Yeah, that makes sense to me too. A lot of the Gontis that I have seen, what they like to do is take cards from other people, especially the answer sort of cards. So since they're in mono black, they don't necessarily have a whole bunch of options about what they can do against, for example, an enemy's enchantment. But they'll use Gonti's effect to then, you know, take someone's disenchant from right off the top of their deck, or take someone's Vindicate, or take someone's Beast Within, or Chaos Warp. And in the meantime, they can accrue a bunch of other value and then assemble a really big traditional mono black win out outside of that while they've been getting the answers that they need from the other players assembled there. That definitely lines up with my experience with Gonti. Okay, so now let's meet our opposition. We're up against Gisa and Giralf. They are a four mana blue-black human wizard. They're a four four, and when they enter the battlefield, you put the top four cards of your library into your graveyard, and during each of your turns, you may cast a zombie creature card from your graveyard. Our next opponent is Doretti, Scrap Savant. This is the red Planeswalker. Four mana enters with three loyalty. It can plus to rummage two cards from your hand. It can minus two to sacrifice an artifact and switch it for an artifact in your graveyard. And its ultimate is minus ten, where you get an emblem that says whenever an artifact is put into your graveyard from the battlefield, you return it to the battlefield at the beginning of the next end step. And finally, our last opposition is Brago King Eternal. This is the four mana white blue spirit. He's a 2-4 with flying and when he deals combat damage to a player, Brago can exile any number of target non-land permanents you control, then return those cards to the battlefield under their owner's control. We're on Gonti, we're up against Gisa and Giralf, Doretti and Brago. Who's our biggest target? Who are we most afraid of at this table? I think the biggest threat is Brago at almost any point in the game. I think number one, it's a really strong commander. It's a commander that can soft lock a game. It's a commander that, when it's in play, can just generate so much value you can't ignore it. Dreddy's pretty good and generates a lot of value too, but it's also pretty easy to disrupt. You're in no danger of dying to commander damage either. You're in mono red, so there's a lot of things mono red can't answer. It's good, but there are windows where you are safe and not paying attention to Dreddy for a turn or two, and I feel like that's not the case with Brago very often. There's times when you, you just can't let Brago go unanswered. Gisendralf 
is a fine commander, but I think if you're playing zombies and you're choosing Gisa and Jirolf, you're doing so because you want to play that card. You're not doing it for power reasons. There's multiple other stronger options. So that alone says something about the player that maybe I feel like I can ignore them a little bit too. So I think it's it's almost, well, I mean, like I've done that too. Like if I'm playing Jeru who, you know, Jeru with eyes open, like you can probably ignore me more than you could the Angus McKenzie super friends deck. Um, I'm clearly choosing a weaker commander for some reason. And it's, it's a weaker commander. So you can let that slide more than you can. Something that's stronger doing the same thing in that color combination. Um, whereas Brago is the strongest commander doing that thing in that color combination, or maybe just in general. So I think Brago is just always going to be the threat. Yeah. So I, I'm probably on board with you on Brago, although it's not necessarily just inherent because of what the commander likes doing. I think that it would be more because Brago has a type of permanent that we're really not going to be able to deal with very well. Brago decks can run lots of enchantments that have really excellent enter the battlefield effects, and then Brago will attack someone and blink all those enchantments to get their abilities again. I think the card is active authority. It's an enchantment that enters the battlefield and exiles anything that you want. Brago can repeatedly flicker that, and then it will constantly be exiling a bunch of stuff. There are a bunch of little tiny enchantments that aren't like Oblivion Ring, that don't give people their stuff back, that just permanently get rid of them, that Brago can take advantage of, and that I think becomes very, very problematic for us when we're in a color that can't deal with enchantments very well, especially considering that Brago's deck is one of the only ones that we can steal from to try and destroy enchantments. There isn't another white deck available at the table, and there isn't a green player here either, which kind of begs the question, not just who is our biggest target, but who do we steal from at the table? I think if we're going to target somebody to to start stealing things from, Brago is that person. I don't think I've ever played against a Brago deck that didn't have some way to just accrue obscene value just off enter the battlefield triggers. Even just getting a Moldrifter isn't a bad exchange, you know, targeting Brago. I think Duretti is somebody that they're probably, they tend to be more combo decks from what I've seen. You know, they get some value, they deal with artifacts, and then they have some big finish Geese and Giraffe, I think, is the last person we want to steal from. They're they're going to be a tribal deck. They tend to be very synergistic, and they need more moving pieces of all the same types. So us only getting one of those, it might be an annoyance for them, but I don't think it's going to benefit us near as much as stealing something from Brago, where we're going to be able to get immediate value from stealing from them. The other two decks, I don't think that really applies. So I think the safest person, if that's how we're going to put it, is going to be the Brago player. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Brago definitely, Doretti's going to have oddball artifact synergistic pieces in there that are going to do you no good. Geese and Jarrell probably going to have some zombie things in there that you don't care about. But like you said, Matt, Brago's going to have a bunch of ETB creatures that it can flicker that are always going to do something for you, even if it's a Muldrifter. And it's probably running counterspells. I've never seen a Brago deck that didn't have a handful of counterspells. That's pretty useful to grab a mono black too, is grab a counterspell and have that there as an option to cast. And... It's never a bad idea to hit a deck that's playing Cyclonic Rift. <laughs> Good call. Good yeah, call. that's fair. I love the counterspell observation. And I also think an important thing uh, to point out for Gonti decks is that they'll use effects like Conjurer's Closet, which will blink the Gonti so that they can then steal yeah. more stuff from other people. Well, 
Brago's the deck that has entered the battlefield effects. If you take a creature, you might be able to use your Conjurer's Closet on the creature that you took to return it to the battlefield under your control and get that ability again, since that's already something that your deck is kind of doing. It seems to have the most in line. And the artifact, all of the minutia and moving pieces that are going on there, we might not be able to make as great effects out of. And the zombie tribal definitely strikes me as just not being as useful because it does require, as you pointed out, Matt, does require a significant density of those effects to become more powerful. That does make me kind of want to ask, though, if our biggest target is Brago, does that mean... And by that, I mean our biggest target for stealing from someone. If we're trying to steal a bunch of cards from Brago, does that mean that they kind of lower down our threat level at all? Because if we do gun down the Brago player and then they're eliminated from the game, anything that we've taken from them back in exile or on the battlefield, it would go away when they leave the game. Does that change our threat evaluation at all? I I don't think so. I think... Like you mentioned, Joey, Brago players are very good at dragging the game out, buying themselves time because they want to get all their their value to be accruing. I think that they usually are going to be well-equipped to handle those types of situations. So they can get focused down pretty pretty quickly, but I think they're going to be able to handle that type of pressure. Brago is one of those commanders that you don't really build unless you know you're going to build the deck to handle the type of pressure that the commander is going to draw. Uh I think the other people, they might try to focus on it. And for the most part, I don't think every player is like Dana. You know, if they're playing Geese and Giralf, they may not, they, you know, they may not know that they're making a subpar decision with their, their, their commander and the deck they're trying to play. So maybe they just, their threat assessment isn't quite there. Maybe they need to be listening to this episode so that we know. You <laughs> I know, feel like, we, I feel like you guys are being so mean to the Geese and Giralf player. I don't think that's a bad commander. Like sure. Scarab God is ridiculous, but Geese and Giralf is still perfectly respectable. I, th- I think with how many different options b- besides Geese and Giralf, I mean, there's even Grim Grin. There's, there's a slew of yeah. other zombie commanders that if, if you're enfranchised, I don't think you're going to pick Geese and Drelf unless you have some sort of sentimental value. And in, in that case, I can't fault a person at all for doing that. No. Yeah, but, I, like I'm not I'm not making fun of someone for playing Geese and Drelf. I just think it's a commander that has more limitations than something else you could choose to do the same thing. And yeah. that, that therefore makes it a little bit less scary. And even looking at the average deck too, you can you can tell that the average deck of Geese and Drelf isn't near as, as tuned, I guess, as you would guess a Scarab God would be. So I think that we can kind of back off on Geese and Giralf. And they're, they're just probably the least powerful commander at the table, too. You can only cast one zombie per turn from your graveyard. I don't think that's quite as powerful as stuff that Brago or even Duretti would be doing. Because Duretti, once you get that ultimate, that's one thing we have to keep in mind, too, is if yeah. you let Duretti ultimate, it's a Mind Slaver lock for whoever they want at the table. And that's an important point about Duretti. I don't think that we as the Gonti player have a lot of aggression to be able to keep Duretti in check, which means that we might be relying on some of the other people at the table to try and keep track of that for us. Because us as the mono black player, we don't have like a bunch of big swinging creatures to try and knock that Duretti off of its pedestal. I want to ask also, which of these commanders is most afraid of us? When Brago sits down against Geese and Giralf and Duretti and Gonti, who are they most afraid of? When Duretti sits down against Gonti and Brago and Geese and Giralf, who are they most afraid of? Which of these players is most afraid of us in Mono Black Gonti? I would guess maybe Duretti, just because it probably has some combo pieces that would be afraid that you would take and just either exile away so they can't have them or use them against a deck. So I'm going to guess maybe Duretti would be scared of you before it would be Geese and Drolf. But 
I think same as the Nekisar situation, I think unless there's a ridiculous board state discrepancy pointing at one of the other commanders, they should always be scared of Brago. Yeah, I, I do agree that Brago probably should be public enemy number one in this situation. I, I haven't seen a Brago player that wasn't just, yeah, they, they didn't build their deck in order to handle these types of situations. So Duretti is interesting because, like I said, there there's some key pieces for Duretti that they're going to want to keep around. They probably don't want us stealing them. So it really depends on how everybody's building their individual deck in this one. This one is probably the most up in the air for me so far. Interesting. For me, I feel like Doretti is definitely the most afraid of us because of those important pieces that they don't want us to be able to take away. Some of those artifacts can be very, very key to the way that Doretti is actually planning on finishing the game out. And I just do find that so funny because that might not be necessarily the first person that we plan on taking cards from. We might take a few here and there, but Brago does seem like the more appealing target for most of the Gaunti triggers. But I do think that Doretti is much more afraid of what we're able to do with the cards that we take or just the fact that we've taken them as opposed to Brago. I feel like a lot of Brago's effects are going to be pretty redundant within that deck, so Brago probably won't mind too much when we're taking stuff from them, and they're going to be more concerned about a Doretti ultimate that they also don't necessarily have as much aggression to try and keep Doretti in check. So yeah. I do think that Doretti's a bit more afraid of us and that Brago is probably a bit more afraid of Doretti. That seems to be about what might transpire there. I think the Doretti player might be the most afraid of the first person to play any bit of graveyard hate. That's probably the, the real answer there. So they're probably <laughs> Joey. It's probably Joey playing Doretti. Wow. I mean, yeah, actually, no, 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 no. I wouldn't be playing the Doretti. I'd be playing the zombies. Come on. If we're talking about graveyards here, in that pod, you know I'd be playing the zombies. I, I will say, I think that the Brago player definitely doesn't want to have to waste their flyer on hitting Duretti to, to knock counters off it when they can hit you and proc the blinks. Right. So I think that that would just generally annoy the Brago player when they get to that point. And they're like, I got I have to hit that Duretti again to put him off his alt. Like, I think that's a reason to remove Duretti at that point if other players can't deal with getting counters off it and Brago with the evasive flyer can, I think that's another reason that would get targeted. Yeah. All right. Interesting. A lot of division on that one. So let's see if we coalesce again on the next pod. Here is our next example. And this one, Matt, the commander that we're going to play in is your old buddy, Omnath, Locus of Rage. This is the seven mana gruel commander. It is a 5-5 elemental that has landfall to create more 5-5 red and green elemental creature tokens. Whenever you get lands, it's absolutely bonkers. And in case that wasn't enough, whenever Omnath or another elemental you control dies, Omnath deals three damage to target creature or player. And I think that's actually been errata to say any target now too. So just hurls a lightning bolt whenever an elemental goes away. Before we see what's happening across the table, what is happening in our deck? What are we doing to win this game? Big old jelly bean beatdowns. That's what we're doing. <laughs> but no, we're, we're either doing, I mean, landfall is the obvious one. We're making lots of tokens and that's a very, very good one. You could also do the elemental tribal route, but more than likely we're just making a slew of five fives and just doing some big, bad beatdowns. Yep. I I do think the elemental build actually tends to be a little better with Omnath. The, 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 the land ramp stuff still synergizes pretty well, but I think having the opportunity to just mass sacrifice, you know, a dozen Firecat Blitz tokens to an Azure's Altar or something and just dome somebody is pretty powerful. But I think either way you build it, it's a really effective deck. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely very aggressive on either of those strategies. I think Landfall is probably the more popular build with it, but we still have some diversity here in our potential deck. So now let's look across the table and see what's happening with our enemies. We are up against Kethis, the Hidden Hand. This is the three mana Obzon Commander from M20. He is a 3-4 and he says that legendary spells you cast cost one less mana to cast. Then he can also exile two legendary cards from your graveyard and until end of turn, each legendary card in your graveyard gains you may play this card from your graveyard. Our next opponent is the Ur-Dragon, the five-color, nine-mana, 10-10 dragon avatar with an eminence ability. As long as it's on the battlefield or in the command zone, dragon spells you cast cost one less. It has flying, and whenever one or more dragons you control attack, you draw that many cards, and then you may put a permanent card from your hand onto the battlefield. Our final opponent is Lazav Demir Mastermind. This is blue, blue, black, black, four mana total for a 3-3 three, three shapeshifter with natural hexproof, and whenever a creature card is put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, you may have Lazav Demir Mastermind become a copy of that card, except its name is still Lazav Demir Mastermind. It's legendary in addition to its other types, and it still has hexproof and that ability, so it can repeatedly change form. We're on Omnath. We're up against Kethis, the Ur-Dragon, and Lazav. Who are we most afraid of? Who is our priority? So I think there's going to be a pretty interesting kind of mini game between Kethis and Lazav. Uh, I think Kethis is going to try to be milling. If you look at the average deck, they're playing stuff like Grizzly Salvage. They're putting stuff into their graveyard, which feeds Lazav. So once Lazav hits the battlefield, I think that that interaction is going to be something that we need to keep an eye on, and we need to find a way to make sure Lazav doesn't become anything too scary, too big that we can't answer later on. Uh, Ur-Dragon by itself, though, is the one that scares me the most. Ur-Dragon, if they're playing a decent amount of cost reducers, I've played many, many games against Ur-Dragon decks, and if they get a quick start, it's it gets very, very scary, and they're doing what we're doing, you know, being the, the Omnath deck, only they're doing it much bigger, much faster, much stronger. So that's probably the person I'm the most scared of, especially once the Ur-Dragon hits the battlefield. That's somebody that we have to keep off the... and, and don't let them establish, because they're going to get so much crazy value so quickly that I think Ur-Dragon is number one, and, and whatever that interaction between Kethis and Lazav turns into, that's who we can then turn our eyes to second. Interesting. Dana, where are you at? I think you have some time. None of these are particularly fast decks. I think these are decks that allow you to breathe, and you can kind of determine what the biggest threat is based on board state, because I don't think there's going to be something that you're super scared of in the first, you know, three, four, five turns probably. Um Someone's going to absolutely tweet at us that their Lazav deck completely terrorizes the second biggest game store in Billings, Montana, or something. Um, and I and I don't yes. doubt that's true. But like, by and large, the Lazav deck is the one I'm the least concerned about, unless something really crazy happens that puts it in that position. I'm much less worried about that deck than I am the Kethis or Dragon deck. All right. <laughs> You're, you've got some spicy opinions today, Dana. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, I used to play Lazav, and I found it to be a very interesting mix between, like, I, I felt like I was almost kind of confused with the deck, because it doesn't play traditionally just like a complete mill deck. Because Lazav has natural hexproof and can transform into something really, really powerful, I sort of found that I almost wanted to go a little, not quite Voltron-y, but definitely something like making Lazav into something impressive and giving it, like, a Darksteel plate indestructible so that no one can mess with my stuff. Especially if there's someone like Kethis across the board who might be milling their own Avacyn Angel of Hope into their grave yard at one point. Lazav becoming an Avacyn 
with hexproof sounds really, really nasty. So I don't know that it's necessarily last on my list, but you do bring up an interesting point there. And it just sort of resonates with me that it was a deck that is tonally harder to figure out. It's not just mill, and it's also not just going to hit you. There's a lot of different potential avenues that it could do. It might be a reanimator. Lazav is kind of a question mark, but that does, you know even if it is harder to suss out what Lazav is actually up to, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most threatening to us because we're just planning on beating people with a bunch of tokens. Yeah, I think the problem with Lazav in this situation is that you're not just playing against Lazav, but you're playing against the other two decks and even your own deck, depending on what you have in in your Omnath deck. You know, say they're playing the Ur-Dragon, they flip over some sort of massive, unstoppable dragon. Well, Lazav becomes that, and then you have to deal with two of those dragons Right. It's it, it, Lazav scares me a little bit because it's as good as the other decks at the table. Um, so if there's some big threats that we need to, to take care of, even if you know Lazav happens to mill them out, we they're not out of sight, out of mind because then Lazav just becomes that threat. So I I don't think we can ignore it. I think each one, each deck here has its own kind of situation that we we need to keep an eye out. Kethas Kethas can even be playing. There's there's a new modern combo deck with Kethas where you're playing. Mox Opal and all these legendary artifacts with Mox Amber and all that, and, and it combos out really quickly, and it's actually kind of scary. So, I mean, it could even be that. So everyone, I think, we're going to need to pay attention to. We're going to have to respect all the opponents, but I, I still think, to me, the Ur-Dragon is the, the biggest and the scariest. Well, Especially... and, to, and to revisit something I mentioned earlier about getting hit from nowhere, for the most part, the Wazov deck isn't going to do that. And there's right. absolutely the chance the Ur-Dragon deck is going to drop that Atarka World Renderer or that Skithrix or something and just one-shot you with an evasive creature that you were not prepared to deal with. I really like what you pointed out there, Matt, with Lazav being as scary as what the other folks are doing. That actually is a really big point for me to consider when I'm looking at which of these decks I'm most afraid of. And actually... That interplay between Lazav and Kethis, it might seem like Lazav gets the upper hand here because Lazav will be able to witness Kethis discarding or self-milling their own big legendaries and Lazav can become a copy of one of those legendaries. But if Lazav is on the type of game plan that uses stuff like Rise of the Dark Realms or Animate Dead to try and get those legends out of Kethis' graveyard, Kethis has something in his back pocket. His activated ability can be used for no reason at all. You can just exile two legendary cards from the graveyard to get that ability, and he can do that as many times as he wants. Like you mentioned, that combo deck from Standard is actually doing, and I think it's happening a little bit in Modern too. So if Lazav tries to get all of the legendary creatures out of Kethis' graveyard, for example, Kethis can actually just exile them all away at will, which means I think that Lazav is actually going to be targeting a bit more on the Ur-Dragon's deck to try and get impressive dragons out of the graveyard, assuming that there's a reanimation strategy here. That's an interesting interplay to sort of point out there between them two. I don't think the Zav is at all planning on milling us because we're going to have more lands than creatures in our deck. And I do think that you're probably winning me over with the Ur-Dragon argument as a result of it being a little bit amplified by Lazav, but also the fact that we're in green and don't have as much response to something that flies. So now, here's the reverse question again. Which of these commanders is most afraid of us? Who's trying to take down Omnath right out the gate? Is Ur-Dragon coming for us? Is Kethas coming for us? Or is Lazav coming for us? Which one of these commanders do you think wants us dead first? I think Ur-Dragon deck, number one, you're playing a commander that costs nine mana, and you're probably playing dragons that, you know, even if you're reducing the cost by one mana, tend to cost, you know, five, six mana for the most part. That deck needs time to get in a position where it can win the game, and... You do have access to green, so it can ramp, but it's not going to be ramping like Omnath. 
I think the Ur-Dragon deck is probably most scared of things getting out of hand with that Omnath deck. See, I, I think that the Ur-Dragon, like Joey said, we're, we're in Gruul, so we probably don't have a ton of air blockers. So Ur-Dragon might just be able to ignore us completely if they're playing the the pure dragon flying tribal route. They know that they can get by, get by us pretty easily. So I don't think that they're going to be, be too worried about us. Lazav may not really care too much about what we're doing. They may not be trying to mill us. Like Joey said, we don't play a lot of lands. The average Omnath Locus of Rage deck only plays 22 creatures. So we're not going to have the most fuel for them. So they're going to be directing their attention to other, other places. But, you know, if we have a fast start, the Kethas player, they, they need their commander on the board probably more than any other of the decks. So us being able to conveniently just toss a couple bolts their way, have a couple, you know, big five fives going their way that might keep them off the board. So they might have to be playing the board wipes to make sure that we don't get to establish and overrun the rest of the table. So I think Kethis might be the one that looks at, looks at us the most with Ur-Dragon just probably not really caring too much. Interesting. For me, I feel like Lazav definitely wants us dead first because we don't present a very interesting number of goodies to provide them for their deck. We don't have much fascinating cards to pull out of the graveyard necessarily. You know, if they take one of our Urkel of Moldias, for example, or a Corsair of Crufix, that's not really great if they rip one of those out of our graveyard or if they become a copy of it with Lazav. I feel like the fact that uh, you know, one-on-one against Lazav and Omnath, I don't think that the Lazav player is confident in their ability to close that game out, which means I think that they want us gone first if we're on Omnath, because they will probably be able to do a bit more with the creatures provided to someone like the Ur-Dragon. So I think that Lazav wants us dead first. That's just my take, but that is sort of where I'm coming at it from, just from my own personal experiences playing that deck. Yeah, I think Lazav wants every... I mean, there's definitely ones Lazav wants dead more, but I think they're all a threat. And I don't know if Lazav was particularly great at answering any of them so i think the lazav deck is just hoping it can partner up with somebody else yeah it does sort of have that effect that's an interesting thing to keep in mind when the game begins someone's playing a deck like lazav which means that they're going to be having a slightly parasitic relationship with another person at the, at the table because they're going to be milling that player to try and become copies of their interesting graveyard cards that's a relationship and a dynamic that we need to be aware of as the game begins for us to figure out who we are most afraid of and who is most afraid of us and it's so fascinating really all of these are just small things that we're just discussing before we've seen any games go on and that's really the important part about these different hypothetical scenarios just imagining which commanders and therefore the cards in their deck are going to be the most threatening to you but this isn't actually an actual like gameplay scenario these are just things that we're amusing just when we flipped commanders over just looking at the commander tells you so much about how they will be shaping and impacting the game and it's a very very helpful exercise to try and assess which commanders you're the most afraid of depending on what your deck is up to and how the games might progress from there. I think it's a really valuable exercise that you should do whenever you're about to begin the game to sort of imagine how the shape of that game story is going to unfold. It can really help you decide what to use your removal spells on, when to use them, and who to evaluate, who to become friends with in the game, who's going to be your biggest enemy, and for what reasons. It definitely can lead to a lot of better gameplay on your part when you are evaluating threat assessment before the game even begins. In this spirit, I've got one last bonus pod for you guys. Let's imagine that you're playing Atraxa Super Friends and your opponents are Atraxa Infect, Atraxa Voltron, and Atraxa Plus One Counters. Who's the biggest threat in that pod? Your friendships is the biggest threat because <laughs> you shouldn't be playing four Atraxa decks altogether. Good answer. 
That is a very, very fun answer. All right, do you guys have any final thoughts before we wrap up and head to challenging some stats? I think it should be noted that it's very easy for us to speak in generalities about this, and we're just going off the average decks on EDH rec. We're not talking about, you know, oh, I have this deck and it, it it's the best one, and I can't believe you didn't like this in the same way. You know, oh, my buddy has a, a, a deck that uses that commander, and it, I can't beat it. Well, well, sure. I mean, it just depends. All the all the power is relative. We're just going off the average deck, so that's just one thing to keep in mind You know, as you re-listen, because you should listen to this podcast at least seven or eight times per episode, because that's, <laughs> oh my goodness. that's what I do. I mean, why, why wouldn't I? <laughs> but... I, I do think that we need to keep in mind that we're just using average deck lists, what the typical player is doing. It doesn't take into account theme decks. For example, my, my Moldrotha plus one plus one counters deck plays very different from the typical Moldrotha deck. Dana's Recce deck, I mean, you never know what to expect with that thing. So I think it's just one thing to keep in mind that, you know, we're not trying to go after anybody. It's just we're talking the general overview of the decks. What does the, the commander typically do? That's what we're taking into account here. Man, your rhetoric has been strong this week, guys. I think you're going to upset some folks because you were not showing the commanders enough respect. I just said, Joey, we're just talking in generalities here. Yeah, because I do think that there's a lot more involved with the threat assessment, I think, that we you know, can't kind of evaluate in the simulation. The board state makes a huge difference. You know, That weak commander that just blows up in the first three turns, that radically changes everything. That, that person in your shop who's a really, really good player and consistently wins games and doesn't make mistakes, that changes the the math regardless of who their commander is. Like, There's a lot to threat assessment beyond just looking at the commanders and eyeballing the matchups. But I think it is, like you said, Joey, it's an important thing to consider, and it's a pretty useful exercise to do once in a while to kind of get you in that mindset. Yeah, and frankly, our evaluations, we could easily be incorrect. I was more afraid of Yarok, but hey, Brea also does combos. I can easily see a world where Brea is the most threatening at the table and has a more aggressive start than Edgar. Like, in each of these examples, it definitely depends on who you're playing with. There's a lot of other relationships that you need to evaluate, and also different ways that someone might be playing the deck. Even with the Nikosar example that you mentioned, Dana, depending on whether that player has Nikosar in play for several turns, or drops the... and then has a whole bunch of spells all in one go. There's a lot of other dynamics, but it's useful to at least begin evaluating from one first step. And when people flip their commanders over, that tells you a lot of information that you should at least be taking that first step to evaluate. Yeah, very much agree. So let's move on now to our final segment and let's challenge some statistics. I'm going to talk about a really great card in a Kozilek deck that I think that people should take more advantage of because of how nicely it synergizes with Kozilek. Remember that Kozilek is a 12-12 with Menace, which means it can only be blocked by two or more creatures? Well, how about this cool number, Silent Arbiter? This is a 4-mana 1-5 artifact creature construct that says no more than one creature can attack each combat and no more than one creature can block each combat. This has been doing a lot of work for me in my new Graven deck, where it is also being severely underplayed, but I think it's very underplayed in a Kozilek deck. Only showing up in 18% of Kozilek decks so far, Silent Arbiter says that your opponents can only block with one creature, and Kozilek says that they have to block with at least two, aka your commander's unblockable and it's harder for people to hit you back. That sounds awesome to me, and more than 18, 18% of players should be using this in their Kozilek decks. The one thing I would say, Joey, is based on most Kozilek decks I've seen, you're probably not too worried about people attacking you when they've just been annihilated to lose three quarters of their stuff. 
I mean, that can be the case if the other cards in your deck are doing annihilatory stuff. Remember, this is the Kuzlik that doesn't have annihilator. He just hits hard, he hits like a truck, and I like clearing the way for him with a Silent Arbiter. I think it makes it very, very difficult and very, very scary. Yeah, I mean, it's just a crawl spacey type of effect, so yeah. I mean, it's not just the crawl space, it also makes your stuff unblockable. I think you're missing out on it. That's a really cool interaction with Menace. You guys should be, man, it's not enough that you disrespect Kozilek. You also have to disrespect my challenge stats. I can't believe you guys. This is absolute mutiny. Let's move on to one of your challenges. Matt, how about you take it next? So mine is a fun little interaction that I didn't really discover, but it just kind of reinforced itself in some of my games this past weekend. So in my Moldrotha deck, I know I've been talking about it a lot today. Uh, Inspiring Call is a card that I was really blown away with. And I think if you are playing Inspiring Call in a plus one, plus one counters deck, which you probably should be, it's, it's two and a, and a green for an instant. Draw a card for each creature you control with a plus one, plus one counter on it. Those creatures also gain indestructible until end of turn. There's another card that actually was really impressive for me, but I've noticed that they don't show up on each other's card pages at all, even though they show up on the same plus one, plus one counters theme. So I think Avenger of Zendikar is a card that if you are playing Inspiring Call, you should be playing Avenger of Zendikar. So it's five green green for a five five that when it enters the battlefield, you create a zero one green plant creature token for each land you control, which is a pretty good ability, but it gets better because it has landfall. So whenever land enters the battlefield under your control, you may put a plus one plus one counter on each plant creature you control. So if you make one single land drop, after you play Avenger of Zendikar, you have fuel for eight, nine, maybe more, you know, cards that you get to draw off Inspiring Call, plus they all get indestructible. So if you're spending all that time and effort into creating this army of plant tokens, it's probably worth your while to save them once they get that plus one, plus one counter on them. So I think Avenger of Zendikar is a good, good friend of Inspiring Call, and if you're playing that plus one, plus one counters, you definitely need to be pairing those two up, so put Avenger of Zendikar next to Inspiring Call. Definitely a really hard hitter in landfall heavy decks, but it also provides a lot of plus one counters, can't argue with that. Plus, I mean, it's it's drawing a fistful of cards for three mana. That too. In green. Dana, what is your challenge? My challenge is for a relatively new card that's only in 1,100 decks in EDH rec, which is, you know, not terrible for a card that's just over a year old. But I think it's not showing up for two reasons. Number one, it's six mana. Number two, it was a buy-a-box promo from way back in War of the Spark. And that card is Tezzeret, Master of the Bridge. I've never seen anyone else cast Tezzeret in a game. However, every time I cast Tezzeret in a game, I probably just win. And I think if you are playing an artifact deck that has access to those colors, and, and Braille would be an example, the fact that you can cast this Planeswalker that gives you affinity for artifacts and maybe lets you empty your hand, since you probably have a ton of artifacts in that deck anyway, and then lets you plus two him to deal 10, 12, you know, 16 damage to everybody, and then maybe do it again next turn, because now he's at seven loyalty and people have to respond and find a way to get through and deal with him, or you're going to do it again... He's a game-winning card in artifact decks, and I'm legitimately shocked he's not in more than a thousand decks. Wow, I am actually I'm pulling up his numbers here. So 
to clarify more precisely, he is in over a thousand decks, but just barely. I guess, yeah, 1100, yeah. Yeah, only in about 1100. That's insane, especially considering that artifacts are the number one most common theme among commander decks. This guy is definitely very, very powerful because, Dana, I've seen you play this dude, and he pluses to deal tons and tons of damage. And that's his plus ability. He's going up right. to seven yeah. loyalty to win the game and then reinforce himself to be able to do it again next turn that thing is nasty deadly it's the type of card that makes me want to build an artifact deck actually so i share your surprise that this is not seeing as much play as a lot of other famous artifact synergy cards are seeing that is a very powerful effect and it definitely deserves to see play in more than just 1100 if you're playing bray i strongly consider this planeswalker absolutely here for it all right, folks, I've got just one last question before we wrap up our show. And this is a question to our listeners, actually. I would like, first of all, for our listeners, I would just love it if they would let us know where they stand on the different threat evaluations that we made among those different uh, five hypothetical scenarios. But I would also like to give them this question. Imagine this hypothetical pod of players. You're playing your very favorite deck. Take a moment to think of which one it is you're on your favorite commander, and then... Here are your opponents. Your opponents flip over Marin, Reki History of Kamigawa, and Valduk. Your opponents are indeed these three jerks named Joey, Dana, and Matt. I want to know, who is your target? Who is the Ooh. number one player that you've got to get out of that game first? Who are you most afraid of? Definitely let us know your thoughts, both on the different commanders in all of these examples that you would want to take down first, that you are most afraid of, and also let us know which of our decks you would be most afraid of if you sit down at a table with us. It sounds like a lot of fun to figure out which of one of us presents the most fearsome target. And with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? Matt? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And Dana. You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach, and you can hear me twice a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter, and you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. It's, it's We'll just minimize your margins and then it doesn't throw anything off. You just see a line. Stop doing it! You continue <laughs> to do it more. <laughs> Just the deck. I the just death scrolled player. down and Tessa Karlov's like <laughs> She's not tapped. She looks like Don Miner tried to tap one of his lands. He doesn't tap it the full 90 degrees. He's just like, here's a 10 degree, and you're doing that to our cards. That, I just want you to Why know, you this is what it would look like on Arena if you attacked with Tasa Karlov and not <laughs> Marisi and Rafik. <laughs>